This is Pamela Kuhn, and the curtain is up on Center Stage, the show about the arts and the artists behind their work. I speak often on Center Stage about the many paradoxes in life and art, and recently I read a transcript from a TED Talk by one of my favorite writers, Annie Lamott. With a raw honesty, she spoke about paradox as being the number one truth she has learned from her life and her writing. To quote her, she says, Life is precious, filled with heartbreaking sweetness and beauty, desperate poverty, floods and babies and acne and Mozart, all swirled together. Well, life is fragile, but there are stories of talented, sensitive people who have walked right into their paradoxical existence. And my guest today is one of those people, violinist-turned-author Erica Miner. This is a woman with whom I have looked forward to meeting, starting our journey, peering into her life, and the meaning of how one incident dramatically changed her future. Having spent a life of blood, sweat, and tears, as most musicians do in their discipline study, Erica graduated magna cum laude from Boston University and went on to the New England Conservatory and the Tanglewood Music Center. She studied with Joseph Silverstein, the celebrated concertmaster of the Boston Symphony Orchestra. She spent 21 years as violinist in the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra, working closely with James Levine. In the music business, Erica Minor was living her dream. But a serious car accident changed her fate. Her injuries may have stopped her playing, but nothing curbs the creative powers of one so talented. Now, as an award-winning writer, poet, screenwriter, journalist, and lecturer, Erica Minor has pivoted within her kingdom. Her recent books, Aria for Murder and Prelude to Murder, have birthed an exciting murder mystery set in the world she knows best, an opera house. And she has built a compelling central character, Julia Cogan, who is, as it turns out, a violinist. Well, Erica Minor, welcome to Center Stage. It is such an honor to have you front and center with me finally. Thank you, Pamela. That was an excellent introduction. I, you gave me goosebumps. I was like, is that really me? But yeah, no, it sounded wonderful. And I really appreciate all that you've already set for us to discuss today. Well, we're setting the scene, aren't we? As you would do in, in one of your wonderful books, which is so, are so filled with detail. I have to say right off the bat, Erica, as a singer, your sense of detail in describing every working of backstage, of downhouse in an opera house is so intricate and specific. I have to say, but you do it with such an ease, you know? We're really caught up in this wondrous world of the opera house and what really goes on. It's one thing to buy a ticket and attend an opera. It's another thing to know the backstage stories, isn't it? It definitely is. And that's one of the compelling reasons why I'm writing this series, because so few audience members have any idea of what really goes on back there. It's kind of like an operatic Tower of Babel. At any given point, there can be as many as 4,000 people working there, all in different jobs, mostly at odds with each other. 
And uh, it makes it a really ripe kind of atmosphere for the kind of conflict that you want in fiction, but especially in a murder mystery. So I thought, why not? And I get to kill off the people who made my life miserable at the same time. What could be? <laughs> oh, what a delight. I, I adore that. And of course, in opera, everybody dies, basically. I mean, you know, our, our best words are adio, yeah, and I am dying. I mean, so here we go. I mean, it all makes sense. So tell me something. In my intro, when I talked about paradox, would you say that that your life has has stemmed from that in 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 a way? You could say that it is a paradox, but I also feel it's as much just a journey hmm. of you know finding a whole different way to to live my life and to um, express my creativity. Because frankly, always I have always written since I was a kid. In fact, when I was in grade school. I was placed in a special after-school program for creative writing when I was about seven or eight, something like that. And I don't know why, but some teacher must have seen a spark of that kind of creativity in me. And so I remember just loving the entire process, even a hundred years ago when that was taking place, of being able to create characters and plot lines and weave them all together to tell stories. So I discovered that I love telling stories, and I always have, and as you probably can tell, I still do. So after what happened at the Met, and we can talk about that um, as far as the accident and how that uh, literally set me in a different direction, I knew that it was my writing that I would go back to as my creative outlet. I love that. So when you were playing in the orchestra at the Met, let's say, and you're seeing all these dramas, you know, these inner dramas taking taking place, were you kind of sketching out in your mind then, like a scenario for a, a, even a short story? Actually, I was thinking more in terms of, at that point, I had started studying screenwriting. And there was one particular opera that actually compelled me to do that, and it was Massenet's Werther. There was something about that opera that evoked something in me that made me want to write a screenplay of that story. And it all started from there. It wasn't until I had written several screenplays, including that one, which is still my favorite because I'm just a pushover for period pieces. I actually got an idea for a novel and I was studying at that point, I had moved out to California and I was studying with a script teacher in LA. And I said, how about if I write a novel? I had this idea for a title called Travels with My Lovers. And he said, you know, that sounds great. Do it. And that's how it all started with a romance. But then I started thinking about the, all the nefarious things that had gone on while I was at the Met. And these are stories that I tell over and over in my lectures. Some of the things that happen there are a truth is stranger than fiction kind of scenario. And I thought, why not set a murder mystery at the Met? Mm -hmm. And it went on from there. The first book, which originally was called Murder in the Pit, it's now Aria for Murder, was published. And then one of my readers said, well, you are going to write a sequel, aren't you? And I hadn't really thought about it. And he said, yes, you absolutely must. And you have to set it at Santa Fe Opera. And I thought, what a brilliant idea. There's no place like Santa Fe Opera. It's unique, nothing like it in the world. And so I went out there and started researching that. And then someone from San Francisco Opera said, well, 
we really love your novels. How about studying one at San Francisco Opera? And so it just has been burgeoning and like kind of a snowball effect. And it's been so much fun writing and creating these characters in situations that I never realized what a wicked imagination I had, but then it started coming, becoming obvious. And I thought, yes, I can do this. And it's been just a wonderful journey so far. This is absolutely fantastic. So, you know, I thought I find it interesting that you choose operas within your books that somehow reflect what's going on in, in the storyline. And, you know, and we have just a bevy of fantastic dramas and opera to choose from. But it's interesting in your most recent book, uh, Prelude to Murder, you choose Lulu, which is a very dark piece set against, you know, this Santa Fe backdrop. And the Santa Fe I know is high desert and the mountains and the beauty of the area and the sunshine. So actually, again, we've got this paradox going, but deep, deep drama in the story in the murder mystery. Well, Santa Fe is actually considered the most haunted city in the entire United States. And I thought I could add that element and make everything even that much more mysterious. So I thought, why not use Lulu and all the other operas in this book, by the way, are some of the uh, most violent and bloody ever written. For Murder Mystery, I thought that really goes over the top in exactly the way I want. And to start right off with Lulu, with Jack the Ripper as a character and all of these incredible things going on with the darkness of German expressionism, I thought, why not? It can happen at Santa Fe. And in fact, Santa Fe Opera is a huge part of the history of the production of Lulu, in fact. Really? I didn't realize this. Well, actually, uh, originally in 1963, when Berg's widow was still alive and would not release the last act of the opera, Santa Fe actually got the American premiere of the first two acts. Then, in 1979, after she had passed away, everybody was vying for the privilege of producing and presenting the first complete version of the opera. And everybody assumed that here in the United States it would go to the Met. But John Crosby was so brilliant and so committed to the fact that he felt Santa Fe was the perfect atmosphere for that premiere and he snagged the, the right, and he did it. And it was an incredible moment in the history of Santa Fe Opera. And I thought, why not start right off with Lulu? Wow. And that's how Starting off with a bang. I love it, literally. So in your work as a violinist, I presume that you did play at the Santa Fe Festival. I actually never did. Uh, many of the my colleagues at the Met would go out to Santa Fe in the summer to play. But for me, I found... 30-odd weeks of opera, including recordings and in the parks, and it's very intense. I could go on and on about, you know, the Met Orchestra having the most difficult schedule of any orchestra in the world, certainly in the opera orchestra. And so for me, I needed my break. So I never did go out there to play. However, I knew a lot about it. I knew a lot of the people who did go there to play. And I have a very close friend, David Holloway, who uh, was a Met Opera baritone, but also was a key player in creating the apprentice program at Santa Fe. So um, I called upon him and said, uh, David, I'd like to come out there and start learning about the company. 
So I was very lucky that he provided me an entree into all the backstage workings, meeting the people and everybody from the, the general director down, the costume director, Missy West, gave me a two-hour tour of the costume department. All of these things made me feel like I had been there before. And so it seemed like a natural atmosphere for the story, which I then created out of these people that I met and the places that they showed me, all the backstage workings of the opera house, not to mention the atmosphere outdoors. You know, there's not there's nothing quite like Santa Fe Opera. You know, the back opens up. I remember once in, in a Madame Butterfly, they opened it. And so behind her house, you see these mountains, you know, and it's the natural terrain. And I'm, I'm just blown away by it. There's just mm-hmm. nothing like it. And I thought... Yeah. Yeah. add that and incorporate all that as well. So it's a really wonderfully rich environment for a murder mystery. Without question. So when you talk about it being the most haunted place, are we getting back to the indigenous Indian tribes? Are we getting back to those who really claim the area first? I think we can go all the way back to the early 1600s, actually, with the the indigenous people, the conquistadores, and the Mexicans and all of these people who who emigrated from the eastern United States going west, it, it was a melting pot. It still is a melting pot. But back then, as I explain in the book, it was like um, a pot about to boil over, simmering with the resentments between the different groups, mm-hmm. especially between the indigenous people and their conquerors. So... It adds to the atmosphere, and I also did a lot of research about um, why Santa Fe is considered the most haunted place in the United States. There have been sightings of ghosts since pretty much day one, and up until including now, there's actually a real estate agent there who goes around and clears these houses before people move in to make sure there are no ghosts. I mean, that, you have to admit, that's pretty haunted. And Incredible. It is. And then there's La Posada, that famous hotel that has its own ghost. Yes, you know? yes, yes. So all of this comes together to create a backdrop that's just unique, I think. And and rife with possibilities. I know that Santa Fe is also known as an art gallery kind of town. And of course, it's very witchy in other ways. I mean, there are a lot of spiritualists who live there taking advantage of this otherworldliness of the area. It's so interesting to me that that's happening out in the high desert. I Yes, well, the high desert is a very spiritual place in more ways than one. And I think it's reflected also in that chapter where Juliet goes on a vision quest. Mm-hmm. And all of that spirituality, I mean, I've been on a vision quest. It actually was in Sedona, not in Santa Fe. But you get, how can I say this? You start getting people speaking to you from elsewhere from another dimension really you really have there's something about the high desert it's such a pure kind of atmosphere mm-hmm. and the, the native americans the indigenous people always felt that it was the most spiritual place on earth you know so you're saying the word otherworldly it describes it perfectly and so I think that the high desert is just evokes these kinds of spiritual feelings from people where you get connected to uh, another 
space and another time. It's kind of hard to explain. It's all very yeah. esoteric, but it makes perfect sense to me. I, I understand well, because I actually come from the high desert of Oregon. And wow. there is a similar kind of crispness in the air. There's um there's a vibrational quality. Let's put it that way. You know? Definitely vibration that that's unlike anything else. This is so exciting. I I need to know, Erica, when when you were being taken on these tours backstage at the Santa Fe Opera House, were you starting to develop in your mind your story then, or had you had something already story booked out? Actually, it was those tours that started um, creating these ideas in my head because uh-huh. I had never actually been there before. I had ideas of what kind of trouble Julia could get into because she's prone to that. And the fact that she even survived, not only survived um, this terrible situation at the Met where she was the target of a killer, but she also ended up, because she has such inner strength, ended up performing so magnificently that not only she was invited to go play at Santa Fe, but to be the concertmaster. And that, for a 23-year-old with only one year of opera experience under her belt, is pretty extraordinary, but also very stressful for her. So already she's under stress, excited, but under stress. And then there are all of these places where you like you, you look behind the opera house and you see this just acres and acres of sagebrush and chaparral with nothing else. And, and your mind starts going, well, what could happen there? Did I see something out there? You know, and all of this started going on in my mind and it just kept escalating from there. So I've got to ask you about our main character here, Julia Kogan. So obviously we could all look at her and think, okay, how much of Erica Minor is in Julia? Is it possible? Oh, definitely. And as uh, one of my previous publicists said, when I was talking about my first book, Travels with My Lovers, I said, well, people keep asking me how much is fiction and how much is not. And she said, all you have to say is only the author knows for sure. But in the case of Julia, I'm actually, I'm quite proud to say that she is very much based on what I was going through when I was first starting out at the Met. 
She's young. She's in her 20s. She's very musically talented, but she has no idea of the political machinations that go on at that place. And so it's a real eye-opener for her. Um, in the meantime, however, the beauty of fiction is that you can create a character who may be somewhat based on yourself, but has characteristics that you wish you had. Right. Like- <laughs> And her courage, I could never be that brave. I have to say, the way she faces adversity, um, you know, it's I can only wish to be that way, but I get to create that in fiction. So uh, that makes it really such fun. And I also draw upon what I think would be my own reactions to certain situations. And again, it just escalates from there because I, you know, you know, um, Richard Stilwell, the wonderful baritone, once told was the one who told me, my dear. You have such a wicked imagination. And I said, really? I never thought of it that way. But I guess he must be right because I keep creating these situations. I think there's a lot of truth in these situations you're creating, even though I don't know about a conductor being killed uh, as you open, you know, Aria for Murder um, on the podium. And when I was when I was reading that, I was taken back to Alfred Hitchcock, the man who knew too much, with the wonderful performance at the Royal Albert Hall, when uh, you know a dignitary is going to be assassinated with the crash of the cymbals, and you've orchestrated it so cleverly with with a shot on stage. I mean. I love the way your mind works, Erica, and I love the way you've gone into super sleuth mode. And it's beyond Agatha Christie, really. It's much more interesting, you know. Wow, I, I'm I'm so flattered. I mean, she's she's my idol. She's my literary hero when it comes to these kinds of stories. But and Hitchcock as well. I have to say that uh, there was mm-hmm. even though I wrote. This, my own story before I went back and, and watched The Man Who Knew Too Much again, uh, I still think that there's a lot of inspiration in there. And what was going on in my mind was, okay, the first murder, who's it going to be? Who's going to do it? In fact, in mystery, you really no- have to know the villain, the perpetrator um, before almost anything else. Okay. I was thinking, what opera is there where something like that can happen and it be realistic and no one can really know about it because what's going on on stage in that particular scene of Don Carlo is a complete distraction from what's going on with the murderer elsewhere. So I had, in fact, I have so much fun choosing which operas to do and also which opera quotes to put at the beginning of each chapter. So, um, yeah, it's just a, a delicious kind of thing for me. I have to say, as a singer, I loved all of your operatic quotes. I was literally thumbing through the pages to see what was coming next. It's so cheeky of you. I just love it. It shows us what knowledge you had of your art. And there's a part of me that just has to ask you something. And I don't know if this is a sensitive question, but your conductor, Abel, who is your trusted mentor and ally, was there any of James Levine in that character? Is this something that that you built around James Levine as an ideal? Yes. To to say it simply, yes. Definitely a lot of James Levine in this character. Uh, I had a very special relationship with him. He was very key in my getting this position at the Met when he heard my audition. And he really advocated for me. And that meant such a great deal because, of course, as you know, 
it's fiercely competitive to get those positions, especially in the first violin section. So uh, I always had a great deal of respect for him, of admiration for his brilliance. I mean, not only was he a brilliant conductor, he was a brilliant pianist. He approached all of the operas with such an incredible depth of knowledge about them. But not only that, you could tell that he had a deep love for the music. Yes, he did. Communicated that to us. And of course, we spent more time with him than any other conductor. So we all got to know each other extremely well. And just the fact that he was able to communicate that deep love, that emotion about the music, sometimes he would just stop and say, this passage just makes me feel such and such a way. I remember he talked about uh, the translation of Magic Flute in one of the arias, uh, or just maybe even before an aria, in one of the dialogues, where Zerasto says, in German, Steal, but in English, it's Arise. And Levine oh. said, I have to say that when it comes to expressing that particular kind of emotion, Arise is just the perfect English word for it. And I've never forgotten that. And he was always imparting these wonderful things to us about the music, clearly, which he had studied and studied and studied and knew inside out. And we were so lucky to be able to be a part of that knowledge of his. And plus, he worked us terribly hard, but that's how he got those great performances. Yeah. yeah. So all in all, yes, I, I felt like I wanted, not that I wanted to murder him, but uh, that I wanted to pay homage to him to make him a very important character and a very important personage to Julia and to her life and her career. And so it's kind of a love letter in a way. And that's what I was seeking to create with that. You know, I don't think the world is ever going to see as versatile a conductor in opera as James Levine was. And I personally will never forget his Edie Meistersinger. I had heard several times that this was one of his favorite pieces. And I know that in Parsifal, it just spoke to me on another level, as if he was so inside of Wagner's writing that there was something so internally divine. Oh, so yes. I- when it came to Wagner, it absolutely, it was his, his whole existence. I mean, his love for Wagner, and especially Parsifal. There was a depth to his Parsifal that I, it affects me every time I hear music from it, I think of him. Erica Miner has lived several lives. When we return next week with part two, she speaks about the car accident that ended her career as a violinist and her calling to the next step in her life. It's like the chapters in her books, always giving way to new development. Please find more information about Erica Miner at ericaminer.com. And I hope you will visit centerstagewithpamelacoon.com for more of my shows and the complete unedited Zoom conversation of this interview. In the meantime, everyone, stay safe out there. This is Pamela Coon, and the curtain is now down on Center Stage. Center Stage.